So when you think of beholding your king, when you think of beholding anything, what does that mean? The word behold simply means to see or to look upon something that is remarkable, to look or to see something that is absolutely unbelievable. And so when Pilate uses that phrase here in the passage that we just read, behold the man, or as we see, we will see next week in John 19, 14, when he says, behold your king, what Pilate is saying, whether he meant it in jest or he said it in all seriousness, he was saying, look to something absolutely remarkable. When the scriptures tell us to behold your king, Jesus, the king of the Jews, the scripture is beckoning us to say, look and see something that is absolutely remarkable or unbelievable. Think about that thing in your life that you have looked upon, whether it be uh, a sporting event or a place in, in nature or a place that you have traveled to or something that you've seen on TV or your first child or whatever it might be. You can have that image in your mind of something absolutely remarkable and it causes you to go behold stop pause and recognize that you are laying your eyes on something that is absolutely remarkable and unbelievable and so when we say behold your king that is the impression that we want to get across when we think of Jesus when we think of Jesus especially in the last 48 hours of his life It is quite a remarkable thing. And so to give us a little background into what is happening up until John 18 right now, Jesus has been arrested, right? He has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he has been taken away and he's been tried by the Sanhedrin. He's been tried by the Jewish political authority. But the Jewish political authority needs one more thing. The one thing they can't do is they cannot execute this man. They don't have the power to execute Jesus. And so they bring, the crowd brings Jesus to who? Brings Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Who was Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor. He was the one that was in charge of this region, right? It was the Roman Empire, and Rome had control over this region. And so Rome would send governors and leaders to be in charge of these regions to make sure that there was no what? No political unrest. And so it was very natural for the Jews to bring somebody who claimed to be the king of the Jews to Pontius Pilate. And they only wanted one thing. They wanted his life. They wanted him to be put to death. And so that's what they're after here in John 18, the passage that we read today. Only Rome could sanction capital punishment. And so what I want to do this morning as we introduce this series, Behold Your King, I want us to look at two things this morning in this passage. Two remarkable things about this Jesus. Two remarkable things about this King. The first remarkable thing we see, it's in verse 33 through 37, we see that he is a revolutionary. We see that he's a revolutionary. What do I mean by that? When Pilate asked him in verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Is he asking him a theological question or a political question? Strictly political. Pontius Pilate could care less about the theology behind the question. He could care less about the theology behind the idea that he was claiming to be the king of the Jews. The only thing Pontius Pilate wanted to know is hey, is this whole thing true? That you're stirring up some kind of controversy behind the scenes? I mean, that can't be, right? Because 
in Pontius Pilate's mind, he needed to reconcile the fact that there was only one king, and it was Caesar. There was only one leader. There was only one person that was going to be that was going to have the claim to the kingdom at all, and it wasn't Jesus. And so when Pilate asks him this question, is not theological. It's a political question, and he wants to make sure you're not really the king of the Jews. But Jesus answers. Do you say this on your own accord, or did others say this to you about me? But I love Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. So what is he saying in that statement? He's saying on the one hand, yes, I am a king. And yes, I have a kingdom. But he's saying, but it's not of this world. And what does Jesus mean by that? When Jesus says that, yes, I have a kingdom, but it's not of this world, what is he trying to say? He's trying to say the king that you're used to, the kingdoms that you are used to seeing operate like this. The king gets the power and gets the wealth and gets the status and what do they do with it? They forever crush anybody in opposition to them who will stand in their way. The king that they're used to is the king that takes all of the wealth and all of the status and all of their power and crushes their opponents. And when Jesus says, yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world, what he is trying to communicate is I have a different kingdom ethic. There's a different way in which this king operates. There's a different way in which this kingdom will be run. And yes, this king has power, but it will not be used to crush and destroy. But this king will use his power to love and serve. This king will will use his power to lay down his life in sacrifice. This kingdom is not of this world. But what does Jesus do here? He says, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And then in verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into this world. And right then and there, Jesus could have cleared everything up for Pilate. Everything. It could have been a done deal. Hey, you're released, you're good to go. Pilate can go out to the crowd and he can say, hey, I cleared it up with him. He talked about the kingdom being out of another world. You have nothing to worry about. But Jesus does not at one instance refute that claim. And in that one moment, he was guilty of being a revolutionary. In that one moment, in his actual silence, failing to defend himself. Sound familiar? 700 years earlier in Isaiah, what does it say? Like a sheep before his shears is silent, not one word came out of his mouth. Actually, it was the silence of Jesus, his willingness to stay silent that actually condemned him. Yes, I am a king. His silence was overwhelming. Yes, I am a king. And there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. It absolutely turned this world upside down. What is remarkable about Jesus? Yes, he is a king. Yes, he is a revolutionary. And how have we seen, how have we seen this revolutionary king throughout history? And the reality is, wherever the kingdom of God went, wherever the good news, the gospel of the kingdom went, it turned this world upside down. How do we see this revolution played out in the course of history? 
Well, it starts where? It starts in Galilee. What does the Gospel of Matthew tell us? That Jesus went from village to village doing what? Preaching the good news of the kingdom. That there is a kingdom, but there's good news that, that accompanies this kingdom. And what's the good news of the kingdom of God? That the blind will see, that the lame will walk, that the poor have the gospel preached to them. It is a di- different kingdom ethic, and wherever the revolution of the kingdom of God went, it transformed the entire world, but not by destruction and not by force, but by love and service. And how do we see this played out in history? We think about the, the, the culture at the time and the society at the time. It was a what? It was an ancient Greco-Roman world. Think about women at the time. If you were to go to any Roman-occupied village at the time, ratios looked a little like this. 150 men to about 110 women. Why? Because men at the time, fathers at the time, had the freedom. If they really didn't want their daughters, they could simply discard them. But when the Christians started to move into those villages, when the kingdom of God started to, become, started to be advanced, guess what happened? The, the Christians said, not, that's not how it works around here. Not on our watch. And they started to bring women into their homes. They started to love women and validate women. And they began to say, no, 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 no. Women are created in the image of God. And these little girls have just the same amount of worth and value as the little boys do. And what started to happen? Women started to flock to the church as a sanctuary. It became the only safe place in the entire world where women could find refuge and hope and a future. What happened with the kingdom of God with widows? Do you know in the ancient Greco-Roman world that a widow had to be married within two years? The government said it doesn't matter if you love the man, it doesn't matter if you want to be married to the man, you have to be married within two years because the government is not going to take care of you. But what did the Christians do? They said, that's not how it works around here. And the church began to invite the widows into their home. They said, no, 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 you don't, have to, you don't have to marry anyone. We are going to take care of you. And the church has started to invite the widows into their home and to care for the widows and love on the widows and provide for the widows. And they said, no, 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 no not on our watch. Not on our watch. And over and over again, wherever the kingdom of God went, the plight of women and children Increased and improved dramatically. Wherever the good news of the kingdom of God went, it changed the world. This king was revolutionary. You think of the Emperor Julian. The Emperor Julian, who's the Roman emperor, what does he do? He comes out and he says, I got a crisis on my hands. Everybody is leaving our religion, paganism. Nobody's following our religion anymore. And the crowds asked him, Why? And they said, because of these Christians, there's something different about them. And they said, what's so, different about the, what's so different about the Christians? The reason they're leaving paganism and converting to Christianity is because not only, not only do they love their poor, they love our poor. Because it was known at the, in the time that you took care of your own poor, the Africans took care of their poor, and the Greeks took care of their poor, and the Romans took care of their poor. But the Emperor Julian said, but these Christians, there's something weird about them. They take care of our poor. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands started to convert from paganism to Christianity. The kingdom of God, Jesus, was a revolutionary unlike the world has ever seen. Behold your king. Behold this revolution of the good news of the kingdom of God. 
But not only was Jesus a revolutionary, later in this passage that we read, he's also presented to us as a substitute. Verse 38 through 36, what does it say in 38 or 39, for instance? It says, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. What was so special about Passover? What was Passover? It was the commemoration of the release of the Jews from bondage in Egypt. And so even Rome, isn't this fascinating? Even Rome would recognize this tradition that every Passover, one criminal would be released from prison to commemorate the Jews being released from bondage in Egypt. And so Pilate says it's, it's custom, it's tradition that we recognize that one criminal be released. And what does he say? So do you want me to release the king of the Jews referring to Jesus? But in verse 40, the crowd shouts what? Not this man, not Jesus. Release Barabbas. Think about what they are saying. It says Barabbas was a robber. And that language is nice there. Really, he, he was a robber that murdered. The other gospels tell us that he was a, uh, that the way he robbed people was murdering people. This man was a criminal. This man was sentenced to death. This man was vile. This man was guilty. There was no trial left for Barabbas. You have to understand, this was a done deal. It wasn't like he was waiting his sentence. Barabbas was in his cell waiting for execution. He had killed people and robbed people and destroyed people. He was an insurrectionist and a revolutionary, and he was sentenced to death. But think about what they are saying. Not Barabbas... Or not Jesus, but Barabbas. Think about what they're saying. We want the guilty, the vile, the criminal, the murder. We want him released. And in return, we want the innocent one, the pure one, the righteous one. We want him condemned to death. History historians tell us that when a prisoner or a criminal was to face execution, that they would, in Rome, as you know that you were put to death by crucifixion, they would prepare your cross days in advance. And they would label the cross with the criminal's name on it. And so more than likely, there was a cross waiting outside for Barabbas. There was a cross waiting outside that this was Barabbas' cross. And what did the crowd say? Not this man. We want this man to take Barabbas' cross. Let that sink in. We want the guilty to be released, the vile to be released, the criminal to be released. And we want the innocent Jesus the one full of grace and truth. We want him to take Barabbas' cross. And it later goes on to say in verse 1 of 19, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And as they beat him, Pilate eventually in verse 5 brings Jesus out and Pilate says, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw them, what did they cry out? Crucify him, crucify him. Think about Barabbas. Barabbas is in his cell. 
underneath this building. And he cannot hear, he is not in ear's distance, that he can hear what is going on upstairs. He can't hear the conversations between Pilate and Jesus. He cannot hear the conversations between Pilate and the crowd. But Barabbas could probably have heard this. What were the two things that the crowd shouted? Barabbas and crucify him. And could you imagine Barabbas waiting his execution, hearing the guard come downstairs, hear the key open the gate, ready to be led out to be executed, and the guard say, Barabbas, you are free to go. You are released. Could you imagine being in a prison like that? Condemned and guilty, sentenced to death, and someone saying you're free? Well, for those that are in Christ this morning, you should know. You should know that feeling. Because Jesus didn't take Barabbas' cross. Jesus took your cross. Jesus just didn't take Barabbas' place. He took your place. You see, the miracle, the miracle of the gospel, the miracle of the kingdom of God, the miracle of Easter is that there was a man, Jesus Christ, who was perfect, that took on your sin and your guilt and your shame and your cross and your punishment and your execution for you. So that the guard comes in and maybe for the very first time this morning and says, I know life is tough. I know life is heavy. I know life is burdensome. But there is one that speaks to you this morning and says, you are free. You are free. You see, we are the ones that are condemned and set free. And you are Barabbas. And Jesus took your cross. In closing, this morning I talked about how the kingdom of God changed the world. Well, between 500 and 700 years after the time of Christ, there's three plagues that devastated the known world at the time. And these plagues wiped out about 25% of the population. Imagine 5 million people being wiped out of the state of Florida. But a quarter of the population wiped out because of these three plagues. And the story was the same. In every region where these plagues hit, what were people doing? People began to flee. Pack their bags, pack their belongings, and they move on. They began to flee. But the testimony from every area was this. There was one group that didn't flee, and it was the Christians. While people were literally fleeing from the town to escape the plague, the Christians were actually moving in. They were building and and setting up uh, makeshift hospitals. The people were looking at them, scratching their heads, saying, you're going to get sick, you're going to die. And the Christians in droves began to come in to care for the sick and to nurse the sick. There's this incredible story in the capital city of the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople. They developed what is known as one of the first hospitals. 
And the testimonies that came out of that hospital is that as the Christians began to care and nurse and try to bring back to life those that were dying from the plague, that the Christians, because nobody was caring for them, actually took on the plague themselves. And the plague began to be transferred to the Christian in order for their neighbors to live. Think about that. Think about that. The Christians took the sickness of their neighbors into themselves, and they died in order for their neighbors to live. Jesus takes our plague, our sin, and our shame, and our guilt, and was put to death so that we could live. I recently heard somebody preaching on this passage, and as they were reading the Scripture before their sermon, as they got to the words, crucify him, they began to weep, and they had to sit down. So overwhelmed by the beauty of substitution. So overwhelmed that Jesus took our cross. So overwhelmed of that good news. Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus? This one who lived the perfect life, who died on the cross for your sins, who took your shame and your guilt and your burden to the cross in your place. Do you know him today? Today could be a day that changes your life forever, knowing there is one, a king, and his name is Jesus, who loves you and looks upon you because of his work and says, I love you and approve you with my favor as if you are my own son, as if you are my own daughter. May you find rest and hope in that good news this morning.